0: Wild, the baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Meg Rowley of Fan Grass, and I am joined as always by Ben Limberg of The Ringer. Ben, how
1: are you? I'm feeling pretty well. How are you?
0: I'm I'm fine. Doing fine.
1: Neither of us has lost our jobs today, which puts us in a better position than Mr. Joseph Girardi. His squid is fried. We talked on our last episode about Girardi's chair being wobbly, and in between that episode and this one, it toppled all the way over. Yep. He's gone sprawling on the floor. (laughs) Joe Girardi has been dismissed as manager of the Philadelphia Phillies.
0: Yeah, keeping up his radio appearances despite his firing. That's good.
1: Got something to fall back on, something to keep him busy. He'll be back in the broadcast booth in no time, I'm sure.
0: Right. And, you know, because of how these things seem to go, probably uh, wouldn't rule him out for making another uh, managerial run at some point.
1: (laughs) No, not at all. Yeah. So we talked about everything that ails the Phillies last time. So we don't have to rehash the whole segment, which was probably pretty depressing for Phillies fans. But I guess baseball life in general is probably pretty depressing for Phillies fans these days. And I don't know whether dismissing Joe Girardi helps in that respect. I was going to say, do you think this
0: solves any of those problems we identified
1: I don't think it solves the problems. I think sometimes a manager can become a locus of fan anger. Sure. Whether it's truly the manager's fault or not or what the manager's contribution to the disappointing season is, sometimes the manager, you know— they're the public face. They're out there. They're making the moves. They're filling out the lineup cards. It's not necessarily their fault if the people whose names are on the lineup cards are not hitting or fielding or <laughs> the right people are not pitching. But they're the figurehead. They're the person who's out there on the front whose name is sort of on the stationery, I yeah. suppose. So they're a public face of the franchise, and therefore, maybe on some level, it is satisfying to see the person who signaled for the reliever who came in to blow the game, even if it's really the reliever's fault for blowing the game. Yeah, (laughs) JoJo already put them there, although ultimately, maybe Dave Dabrowski put them there, so it doesn't really solve the problem on any fundamental level. Will the Phillies play a bit better from this point forward than they did up to that point? Maybe, probably, right? I don't think they've dramatically underperformed because I think they were probably the expectation was that they would be a 500 ish team yet again. And that if some things went their way, then maybe that could lead to a playoff appearance in a 12 team playoff format. But 22 and 29, it's not a wild, drastic underperformance, but they've lost ugly a lot lately. Just generally the team as constructed as we spoke about, not the most aesthetically pleasing brand of baseball. And then they've also had a bunch of really tough losses lately, which presumably is what did Girardi in. So maybe it's satisfying on some knee-jerk, reflexive, immediate level, but then maybe the despair sets in again because he realized that there's a new manager in charge, but the roster is the same. And the new manager isn't even a new addition, really. It's Rob Thompson, the former bench coach, who's now going to be the interim manager. So does that actually address any of the deficiencies that got the Phillies to this point? Eh, I kind of doubt it.
0: isn't to say that like he was perfect no. <laughs> as a manager, or even you know above average as we grade these things with the uh, all the great accuracy that we are able to bring to bear <laughs> <laughs> on assessing managerial performance. But yes, it does it does feel like this is part of your job description when you get hired as a manager, and perhaps the part of your job description that you hope you you never have to. Really do, but Mm -hmm. sometimes you're the the sacrificial lamb because it's not like they're gonna, you know, they're not gonna cut any of their recent free (laughs) agent signings. That's not gonna. (laughs) Mm -mm. You know, I don't know what the solution is going to be. You could, I guess you can say at Nick Castellanos and Kyle Schwarber, like, be better defenders. But like, is that going to help? Probably (laughs) not.
1: Probably not. not. No. Yeah. So Dave Dombrowski said, it has been a frustrating season for us up until this point as we feel that our club has not played up to its capabilities. This is the Phillies president of baseball operations. While all of us share the responsibility for the shortcomings, I felt that a change was needed and that a new voice in the clubhouse would give us the best chance to turn things around. I believe we have a talented group that can get back on track And I'm confident that Rob, with his experience and familiarity with our club Is the right man to lead us going forward So, it's a new voice in the clubhouse It's a change, it's sort of a surface level change Because there's a lot more change that needs to happen And maybe you can trace some of that change back to Dombrowski Who was not gifted with an ideal situation when he took over in the first place And even the situation he walked into in Boston Where... They had prospects, at least. They had a farm system. Yes, some of it was him just throwing money around, which can be a useful skill for a GM, but he also had some prospects to deal. And with the Phillies, he didn't really even have that arrow in his quiver. So he had to sign some free agents and sign some players to an extension move, but that just has not been enough. And you don't really bring in Dave Dombrowski at this point in his career for a full-scale rebuild, and he probably would not want to sign up for that either. So- They were hoping that he could paper over the cracks, and that just hasn't happened. So Joe Girardi, during his not-so-distinguished tenure, two-plus season tenure, and one of those was a shortened season, as the Phillies manager, he finishes 132 and 141. (laughs) So... Look, it's it's just so dependent on the roster that you have. And he's been dismissed after winning the Manager of the Year award in Florida, right? So he's had the ups, he's downs, he's won a World Series, he's had losing teams. It's so dependent. On the talent and the context and you really have no further to look than Gabe Kapler, I guess, for an example of that, right? Who didn't last a long time in Philly and didn't have a distinguished record himself and then he goes to San Francisco and suddenly he's the managerial genius who's getting more out of all the players. So. It's just it's so dependent on the fit and the players that you have and the front office that you work with, and yeah. so I don't think this addresses any of the the deeper roots of the problem here.
0: No, and you know I think that on the one hand you can look at Kepler's success in San Francisco and say, well, this just you know, proves that he was a better manager than he was given the tools to succeed with in Philly. You can also say that, like, you know, he he maybe adapted his managerial style, having learned some things from yep. Philly. So it's, it's always kind of a complicated soup. Like, on the one hand, Kapler is working with a team that seems to do a better job of getting the most they can out of players who either, you know, they've identified as being sort of underperforming and fixable or whose careers have been good and who they've been able to help adapt and then lengthen. Mm -hmm. I will say that like dealing with the myriad platoons that they run in San Francisco require some kind of managerial skill right like yeah. i mean he's being given information by the front office but executing that still takes some doing so there's that but i don't know managers are important how much you know some
1: <laughs> yeah there aren't that many cases where a manager is dismissed and i think well they fix the problem right <laughs> you know <laughs> like whatever led to that manager being dismissed they were the problem, and now clean slate, everything's going to be great. Like maybe there are occasional situations where it seems like really the manager poured fuel on the fire. Yeah, You know, you have your Bobby Valentine in Boston sort of situations <laughs> where it just seems like this is not a good fit and that maybe the manager actually did subtract some, some significant number of wins in this case I don't know. It doesn't seem like Girardi was maximizing the talent or getting more out of this team than was there to begin with. But there are just a lot of other issues that persist even after his dismissal. It is almost surprising at this point to see a manager dismissed at this point in the season because yeah. we haven't seen that in a while. It wouldn't have been unusual at earlier times in baseball history. But I believe the last time a manager was changed, was fired at mid-season was 2018. The Cardinals fired Mike Matheny after ninety-three games in July. For the most part, when we have seen changes lately, we've seen off season changes, or maybe just for the last few games of the season changes. So a midstream change that almost feels out of step with the way that managers work with front offices now, where it's That they're usually moving in lockstep and usually the front office handpicked the manager. Now, that wasn't the case here because Dombrowski inherited Joe Girardi when Dombrowski was hired in late 2020, which maybe made him more dispensable in Dombrowski's mind here. The firing of Girardi or or the failures of Girardi or perceived failures did not necessarily reflect on Dombrowski himself. So maybe that's part of it because usually it's well you go through this exhaustive interview process with the manager and you hire someone who is on the same page in most respects and then you're constantly in communication and you're meeting and the manager is largely in a lot of cases just working in concert with the front office or executing the front office's directives to some extent. And so there's almost no point. In severing that limb because it's basically the same body, you know? It's right. not like the manager is contravening some orders from above. They're kind of on the same page. And then once you remove the manager, then there's no cover for the general manager. It's right. like the sacrificial person who is positioned in front of the GM. And then if things keep going bad, then people start saying, huh, well, they changed the manager right the team's still losing so <laughs> and right. then you point the finger upstairs so
0: yeah it's like you know there's that expression about you don't have to be able to run faster than the bear you just have to be <laughs> able to run faster than the guy behind you and it's exactly. like that's true except oh no there's another bear <laughs>
1: yeah
0: <laughs> watch out for that other bear Now there's no guy back there. It's just you and the bear. Like, what are you gonna do with that? It would be better if like the Cubs were really good for this, like analogy to really work, and they're like clawing at the Phillies and they're Mm -hmm. the Bears. But no, like it's it it is kind of interesting to me because they don't. Well, he didn't. Well, Dombrowski didn't pick Joe Girardi. Like they don't seem. Ideologically opposed to me in terms of the way no. they think about baseball, like they seem like they probably understand the game in largely the same terms as one another. So in that respect, it's like, well, yeah, I didn't pick you, but you know, we're not like wildly different. They wouldn't make a sitcom about us or anything like that. but mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's doing something. You know, yes. and it's sort of a bummer that I would be kind of cavalier about that because, like, yeah, this is a person's job. Although I think Joe Girardi's done fine for himself, yeah, so it'll I think be okay. I think Joe will be fine. But you know, I guess the the risk that you do run in these situations is doing this and then like losing the clubhouse or really disrupting what you've got going on. But as we have discussed, it doesn't seem like the vibes are like amazing to begin mm-hmm. with. So. There's that piece of it. It's very rarely the the manager's fault, as you said. And like when there is an obvious identifiable issue with the manager, simply getting rid of them and not addressing larger, you know, potential front office dysfunction or what have you isn't really gonna do a whole lot. And I'm not saying that there's necessarily like front office dysfunction here, but as you said, because there's so often a tie between them, it's like, well, this yeah. is just like your press secretary. That's a dismissive way to talk about a manager, but you know what I mean? It's like you're the mm-hmm. the front facing person of the organization. If the rest of the org is still like committed to vibes yep. and no defense, then what are you gonna do with that? So
1: there's been a lot of turnover in the front office too, but again, yeah. there's only so much you can do without that turnover on the roster or without underperforming players starting to perform as expected or overperform at this point. So, no, it's not Girardi's fault that the Phillies have not been able to develop a great, homegrown, talented core. It's not really Girardi's fault that they haven't had a great bullpen, that Dave Dombrowski, whoever could have foreseen, that he might not assemble the strongest bullpen ever assembled. So, He was handed a set of players and perhaps he did not make them into more than the sum of their parts or even the sum of their parts. There's something less than the sum of their parts, perhaps. But hopefully it was cathartic for Phillies fans to have at least the illusion of change, the appearance of change, some surface change. And coaching assistant Bobby Meacham was also dismissed. And Rob Thompson, as he was promoted to interim manager, the quality assurance coach, Mike Kalitri, was promoted to bench coach. Now, that guy. His job is to assure quality. That has not happened. <laughs> so you'd think his head would roll too. You know, I you know it's not that type of quality control. No. It, would, it would be nice if you could have a, a coach who just assured that your team was good, just quality control. Yeah, that sounds easy. That's more about the process of planning and advanced scouting and positioning and such. Anyway, a little change there. Sorry, Phillies fans, that you are going through what you are going through. I hope for your sake that this helps somehow.
0: Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, I hope it gives you something else to think about for 24 hours.
1: (laughs) Yep. So in other baseball news, we had an extension signed, right? Yeah. Seemingly, reportedly, Jordan Alvarez has been signed by the Astros to a six-year, $115 million extension, it sounds like. And I know that he was the subject of one of Dan Szymborski's recent Fangraphs posts about yeah. candidates for extensions. And that was well chosen, obviously. Yeah. I think Dan had put his estimate at seven years, $128 million. Yes. Same sort of ballpark, yep. it seems like. But in the Dan, neighborhood. Yeah, so Dan wrote, You've already struck out with one of your outfielders, why not go after another one? Alvarez isn't quite as well rounded as Tucker is, but I think he's even more interesting in terms of pure offensive talent. If twenty twenty one erased any worrying lingering injury issues, then twenty twenty-two should be doing that for any concern that Alvarez would have trouble with a dejuiced ball. Despite that juice being gone, he's still crushing the pulp that remains, and even our least optimistic projections for him now has him finishing with more home runs than 2021, and it's true. Like Looking at Alvarez, he has really raked his entire career. Last year was a down year. He still hit 33 dingers. Going back to 2019... Minimum 1,000 plate appearances, there is one major league hitter who has been better than Jordan Alvarez, and that's Mike Trout. Mike Trout has a 177 WRC plus since 2019. Alvarez has 156. That is above Juan Soto at 154 or Fernando Tatis Jr. at 153 or Aaron Judge at 152 or former Astro George Springer at 148 or Bryce Harper at 147. He is absolutely on the short list of one of the very best players in baseball, at least hitters in baseball. Yep. We don't talk about him and obsess over him as much as we do some of the other players I just named because he is a more one-dimensional player. But that dimension is superlative. He is yep. better at that dimension than just about anyone. So I can see why the Astros would want to stay in the Jordan Alvarez business. They're not a, a young team and they've let a lot of people go. They haven't been big players on the free agent market. They've been more active when it comes to extensions. But Alvarez, he's 24, which, wow, 24. You think of him, at least I think of him as being older, I guess because he's been so good and he came up young. And maybe because he's had like multiple knee injuries and he's just giant. And I think of him as just like being in an older body i guess yeah so maybe it is in terms of wear and tear but i don't think there should be much concern about him over the period covered by this extension i I guess when does this run through because 2028 2028 all right so yeah that's that's not a long time (laughs) so he'll still be fairly young at that point
0: Yeah, he would have been, he would have become a free agent following the 2025 season. uh, And now it will run through 2028. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, he's just, he's a very satisfying hitter to watch, right? Like, he gets on base, he hits for power. Like, his you know, his speed is what it is. He's never going to, like, he has one career stone base in <laughs> He has one, you know? <laughs> he knows what his strikes are, and he does that stuff really well, and he doesn't make silly choices out there when it comes to base running, and you're right that, like, it redounds to the Astros' benefit to keep him at DH for as many of their games as they can, and to not really have to suffer him in left as often as possible, but, like, he's just such a oh, great hitter. He's a he's just a tremendous hitter to watch. And like he's, Mm -hmm. you know, he strikes out less than 20%. He's walking 13% of the time this year. He's a 172 WRC plus. Like he's just, he's just been great. He's, you know, he's a, it's funny to say this because he is known for being able to just hit the, the snot out of the baseball. Um, What little snot the baseball will um, Mm -hmm. allow these days. But I think because we are in a depressed offensive environment, like everybody's home run totals are kind of surprising to me this year yeah. in both directions, right? It's it's remarkable that Aaron Judge has 19 and that Betts has 16 and it's, you know, it's wild that some of the guys who have managed to put up like reasonably big totals in the past are uh, kind of quiet when it comes to, to their homes, home runs this year and, you know there's Jordan Alvarez like with 14. He's mm-hmm. he's doing great. So, I think that this is an easy one, I think because it is not simply power that like there is a you know, a really nice, complete package here when it comes to his approach of the play. Like, you imagine that that might age well, even as he, you know, continues to be less and less playable in the field.
1: Yeah, he's not totally unplayable there now. No, He's, but, he's a below-average outfielder, obviously, yeah. and you want to minimize the strain on his already surgically repaired knees, but— yes. You could stick him out there, yeah. and they do sometimes, and he won't completely embarrass himself. He might right. be an upgrade for the Phillies in the corners, let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so and he's listed at 6'5", 225. I would believe the over on either of those. Like yes. if you told me he was taller than that, he certainly looks taller than that. He just – he looms at the plate. He's very intimidating. I guess he turns 25 later this month, which is maybe why I was somewhat surprised that he is still 24. But – Even so, like Dan's projections for him, he's projected to be a greater than four-win player for the next couple seasons, and an above-average player, more than two war, yeah. through 2029. Yeah. And that's hard to do for a player who is largely relegated to DH and probably yeah. will be more and more as time goes on. But you have to really rake yes. in order to be limited to DH and still project as a above-average to very good player. Yeah. And he does. <laughs> he does. So that is uh, what you want out of a player who only hits. You want yeah. someone who hits as well as Jordan Alvarez, and almost no one does.
0: Yeah, I think that we tend to mentally over penalize DH only guys in terms of value because of what we see war telling us. And I, you know, I think there's an argument that we could have that is, is probably overdue about how much our positional adjustments penalize DH, but like really good DH is that's just hard to do. It's really hard to do that. And I know that he doesn't Mm -hmm. DH full time and, you know they they have him out and left on occasion but like he's just a really great hitter and i think that we should allow ourselves to appreciate those guys and sort of be a little more generous in terms of how much we're mentally penalizing them for the fact that they're not able to do the other part like that stuff obviously matters and i think that when you're constructing a value metric like it makes sense to You know reward a guy who can play a defensive position well or you know play a hard defensive position well more than a guy who can only hit but like when you can really hit you can really hit you know Mm -hmm. and those runs count the same so
1: yeah I was going to bring up the lack of just big hairy monsters at DH these days because. DHS have not- now
0: Sorry, now I'm envisioning like the <laughs> abominable snowman from um Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer um, like ah
1: as long as it's not Olaf from Frozen that's fine with me She's but It's not
0: big and hairy <laughs> He is he's, neither big nor hairy.
1: That is why he's so disturbed. Uh,
0: <laughs> you Olaf. don't like him because he's like smooth like one of those hypoallergenic cats.
1: <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> to be
0: clear, we're talking about Olaf, not Jordan Alvarez. I cannot <laughs> no. speak to how her suit he is. No, I do not. Know. I.
1: Yeah. But <laughs> DHs as a whole have not hit that well this year. They have yeah. a 102 WRC plus. So that is one of the worst DH performances on record. Fangrass has these positional splits going back to 2002. The only years with less DH production prior to this one are 2020, which makes sense because no one even knew that there was going to be a universal DH that year. And then 2017 and 2013, I mean, there is some fluctuation in this from year to year, especially because in the past it was largely only one league that had DHs at all. So it's not super surprising, I guess, that this would not be a high watermark for DH offense because it's expanded to every team now and every team has to fill that slot with ADH or DHs. And as we have discussed, there seem to be fewer dedicated DHs these days, and teams will use those slots on the roster and in the lineup to cycle players through and get position players more rest. There's a lot more attention paid to load management and positional flexibility and all of that, but it is pretty rare these days to have a DH who hits like the prototypical ideal DH, your David Ortiz, your Jordan Alvarez. and. How Avarice, yeah. dare
0: you not name the most <laughs> obvious DH choice there, Ben? Oh, who, who? who is the award named well, after? Excuse you, sir.
1: <laughs> I was going to say Nelson Cruz, but he's not holding up his end of the bargain <laughs> this year.
0: Are you only picking players who are currently or very recently <laughs> active? Yes.
1: <laughs> there we go. Okay. Yeah.
0: But yes, it is a it is a position that has, despite... Offense sort of being the game for them, um, not produced the way that you might expect. It's very cruel that Father Time has decided to catch up to Nelson Cruz.
1: Yes. Apologies to slighting Edgar. I did not mean to. But yeah, Nelson Cruz has uh, seemingly been felled by Father Time, perhaps finally. I don't know. I hate to count them out, but he is leading the majors in plate appearances at DH, and he has not done a lot in them. And then you have Shohei Otani, who is not hit like he did last year, JD Martinez, who is certainly doing his part, he is hitting. And then you have Miguel Cabrera, you have Bryce Harper. Now he's boosting the numbers. He was not even supposed to be a DH, but he has had 162 plate appearances in the DH spot. But then you have Daniel Fogelbach, you have Franmil Reyes, you have Andrew McCutcheon, you have Luke Voigt. There are some talented bats here, but yes, a lot of them have not performed up to snuff, and so you have basically league average offense out of your DH's, and probably everyone was scrambling to fill that slot because we assumed that there was gonna be a universal DH this season, but yeah, we didn't even know if there was gonna be a season until fairly shortly before it started. So some people probably did not have time to put plans into place. Anyway, Alvarez signed I'll just read off the names of the other players whom Dan suggested should be signed to long-term <laughs> deals. Since he called Alvarez, he also had Walker Bueller on his list, Brandon Woodruff, Pete Alonso, Harrison Bader, Rafael Devers, Luisa Rise. Love Luisa Rise. What is a great he year. Is having! Oh yeah. man, so much fun. Zach Gallen, and he had a, a separate post. He had more candidates of potential extension players. Vlad Guerrero, Jr., and Dylan Cease, and Julio Rodriguez, and Tyler Stevenson, and Andres Jimenez, and also Shane McClanahan. So – a range there of positions and service time and such. But Dan usually has a pretty good sense for projecting these things and getting the contract in kind of the right vicinity. So yeah. read Dan. I will link to those posts if you are interested. And I know he just wrote also a little trade deadline preview too, which uh, I guess people are starting to talk about that. We We still have Two months to go almost until the trade deadline, which is slightly delayed this year. So he ran through a, a few candidates Just there. Just a couple
0: names. Yeah. Yeah. I felt a little I felt a little bit silly about us doing, you know, like a mini trade deadline post on June third. And then Passon ran one that had like hundred and forty eight <laughs> names apparently. And then I felt like we had shirked. We had <laughs> We had failed in our responsibility. Did you know JD Martinez has a four seventy four Babbitt right now?
1: Oof, wow. What's
0: up with that? That's weird. <laughs> someone to write about that. I might <laughs> I might bother someone who writes at the website I work for to take a peek at that because four seventy four. Yeah. It's, Ju- it's June. It's June third. We're writing about the trade line already. That's yeah. a long time to be doing that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's weird out there. I guess. Yeah. so you know one of the other names that you mentioned I'm gonna say a nice thing about a Mariner because we've been kind of we've been kind of down <laughs> on them because mm-hmm. they've been bad and I feel like that makes our Mariner fan listeners uh, kind of bummed out so I will say the following which is that um, you know I picked an arbitrary date just like uh, April 23rd because then he'd been up for like two weeks you know that that since April 23rd Julio Rodriguez is sitting 308 353 497 he's 151 WRC plus you lock nice. off those two bad early weeks and you know it's been going uh it's been going better. Still feel dicey about the breaking ball recognition, but it hasn't been a problem so far. Eh.
1: Yeah. The umpires have been treating him a bit better perhaps so a bit. <laughs>
0: a bit, yeah. yeah. If you are the
1: Mariners, follow Dan's advice and try to sign that man to an extension while you still can. (laughs) So I guess we have dispensed with the Juan Soto rumors. We have finally put those to rest maybe. I know Dan mentioned him. We had our discussion of Soto, but Mike Rizzo, he shot those down pretty conclusively. I suppose he could always get overruled or bowled over by an offer, but that seems like something that ESPN was trying to make happen more than it was actually organically arising or was going to happen. So if we do not have Soto on the trade market, the other names that Dan mentioned, J.D. Martinez, Frankie Montas, Luis Castillo, Martin Perez, whom we discussed last time, Andrew Benintendi, David Peralta, and I guess we'll link to Passon's List if you want many, many more. (laughs) So we'll have time to see how the market is shaping up. I'm not there yet mentally.
0: No, it's not time. I mean it's fine. It's a fine time. It's a f- it's it's just two months, you know. Yeah. That's uh, that's longer
1: than they've been playing already at this point. We're not even two months into the season. So two months from now, it's longer to get there than it took to get here. <laughs> so we can wait a little longer. Yeah. All right. I mean, the demands of traffic uh, are, are imperatives. But
0: People were asking Dan about the deadline yeah. in his chat. And so he said, I will answer the people because, Dan, he's a man of the people.
1: Mm-hmm. The market is still shaping up. It's still developing. Yeah. All right. Let's answer some emails. Here's one from Martin, who says, I thought I was alone in my frustration of seeing the same 14 walk-offs shuffled in a loop between innings of every MLB TV game I watch, as well as that guitar riff. When Meg brought this up around opening day, I was walking my dog listening to the pod, and I literally shouted, Oh my God, me too, or something. So deep ran the identification. But generally, I have some sympathy for MLB TV's predicament here. What to do? By the way, I do enjoy baseball zen. So do we. I don't know if you were watching the YouTube game on Wednesday, but for the night game, which involved the Dodgers, they made the choice to just show the highlights for the same two teams from the night before, Mm. which I thought was pretty intelligent. So that sparked an idea. What if MLB TV kept the memorable highlights concept? but came up with highlights from all of baseball history that stem from games involving the two teams you are currently watching. Oh! So, if you're watching a Pirates-Cubs game, you could catch a glimpse of, who knows, Fergie Jenkins facing Willie Stargell, young Barry Bonds versus young Greg Maddox. If it's Angels versus Brewers, you might have Doug DeSensei versus Moose Haas, or Garrett Anderson versus Ben Sheets. Okay, maybe a little less exciting. <laughs> Some of these would be memorable playoff matchups or walk-offs, of course, The main problem with the flashbacks is that they're never fresh and seem to misfire in their aim of wallowing in MLB history, so many are from the current year anyway. My solution kind of gets the best of both worlds of exposing fans to unknown footage and indulging in baseball history, which has always been one of the things MLB is best at. MLB would have to hire a couple people to work on this, but I think it would be worth it. What say you about this suggestion?
0: I like it very much. I, I mean, it might be a little technically tricky to pull off, but like, I really don't think that we're making as good a use of the um, of the vast archive we have as we could. Like, there's the- been so much cool baseball and I think that there are a lot of people particularly younger people who have like heard tell of things but haven't had the opportunity to see it necessarily and so I think that using that space to like really bring some new highlights to the fore would be I think that'd be pretty cool I think people would see stuff that they were like oh yeah that I had I had heard tell of that you know yeah
1: I'd like that too I guess it wouldn't work for every matchup of teams because you have teams that maybe haven't been around that long or don't have history with each other. But I think it would be interesting. I would like to see it. I don't know how much has been digitized and would be available. So if you're limiting your sample to games between the two teams who are currently playing and you want to do that for every team that's playing on a given night. I don't know how demanding that would be and whether you'd need to get people to pop in the old tapes and turn them into files that you could play on MLB TV. I don't know what the mechanics of that would be, but in general, I like the idea. I'm all for deepening the pool and widening the pool when it comes to potential highlights and just getting a broader swath of baseball history involved there and just more variety. So if you want to make it specific to the teams, great. And if you have a rivalry series, Maybe that's more exciting than if you don't, and you have teams that don't have a lot of history or animosity or anything, memorable moments between them, but it's okay. I would still enjoy it. I would still just prefer that to what we have now, just the small sample and the endless repetition.
0: Yeah. Although I haven't seen the I haven't seen the guitar riff no.
1: interstitial in <laughs> in months, moons. Fortunately not. Yeah. No. All right. Question from Bobby. Regarding the discussion about the number of teams still viable for the playoffs, I think this could be a case where too much information is a bad thing. Mm. I would guess most people who read fangraphs or listen to Effectively Wild are aware of the playoff odds that have 15 teams with an under 20% chance of making the playoffs as of June 1st. Those people may be appropriately concerned about a lack of excitement down the stretch. But for the casual fan who looks at the standings and sees, for example, that the Mariners are only five games out of a wild card spot, there's still plenty of hope that this could finally be the year they end their long playoff drought. Even though the FanGraphs odds have them at 11.4% to make the playoffs when this was written, the same could be true for fans of the Arizona Diamondbacks, just three and a half games out of a wild card spot, despite yeah. their 2.2% chance to make the playoffs, and the Colorado Rockies, just five games out, despite their 0.2% chance. <laughs> Perhaps the more uninformed baseball fan is lucky in this way. They have more hope. And, yeah, we've touched on this before, the idea that maybe we know too much. Too much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we would be happier if we had some blissful ignorance or I don't even want to call it (laughs) ignorance, but... Maybe we're just we're too online. We're too plugged into the playoff odds. If our we're not engagement, we're
0: shallower. Yeah. That sounds t- that sounds <laughs> bad too. We sound that-
1: condescending and snooty, no matter what we say here. <laughs> if our
0: here's oh oh okay here's one. This maybe mm-hmm. is better. If our interests were more diverse, hmm. and so were are spread across a greater range of uh, activities.
1: Okay, sure. Yeah. yeah, if we were less online. <laughs>
0: I try so hard to be less online, Pat. I know I'm, you
1: do. Yeah, I'm
0: trying really hard.
1: Mm-hmm. I have to be
0: online some. Some of the online is good. I like talking to our readers; they are often mm-hmm. delightful, and our listeners of the show are great. But a lot of the online is bad. Yeah. I think there's something to the idea of being able to engage some and like be done at some. Mm-hmm. Like to be able to look at the standings and say, "Well, it's you know, it's only." two games there's mm-hmm. a lot of season left I hear they're talking about the trade deadline those people are crazy <laughs> there's so much season left right like you know that kind of thing and I do think that to be a fan is often to I mean maybe not for Mariners fans just to honor the email but like you know to be a fan is to be optimistic <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, (laughs)
0: and to and to think that your guys who aren't very good are better or about to turn things around, and that your guys who are good are great, you know, I think that that's part of our often our experience of fandom, and so to believe that you know, it, it wouldn't take very much. It'd just take a, a a little run. All they need mm-hmm. is to go on a little run and then they'll be right in this thing. Like I think that there is something to that. And so yeah. I wonder not that, that we have been too harsh on the format. I still think that there are problems with the format. And I think even a a fan who isn't um tremendously engaged, right? Who is fairly casual in in terms of how they interact with the standings, like they they might look at the number of games back and think, "Well, that's a surmountable challenge." But they are probably aware of like how many other teams are ahead of the team in question, right? Like mm-hmm. even casual fans will be like, "Well, there's a lot of teams in the AL that are like kind of right. in this thing, you know." And so they might have a a sense of where their team is in terms of relative position even if they aren't, you know, obsessively checking our playoff odds, but I do think that like how big a challenge and how achievable a goal it is to just overcome all of that is probably altered pretty meaningfully based on what you look at and what you listen to. And I do think, though, I do think the place where th- this line of thinking is perhaps vulnerable is in terms of talk radio, because I mm. think that, like, there can be a lot of doom and gloom. And if yeah. you're, like, a casual fan that just listens to, like, Drive Time Sports Talk Radio, and you're like in Philadelphia, you probably think that the Phillies are in danger of being relegated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's not as if you go and look at the standings and that is the only media you consume, even if you're not an obsessive, like you, you're you still going to be subject to an information ecosystem that probably gives you some hint that like not everything's going great in Seattle, except for that Julio. <laughs> Let me tell you about him.
1: Yeah. So, If you can look at the standings and you're within a week of... Being in a playoff position, if you won all your games and the teams have you lost all their games, you can talk yourself into it. Fandom is irrational, and sometimes yeah. it can be irrationally pessimistic, True. but sometimes it can also be irrationally optimistic, too. So I don't think that it's necessarily worse, and in some ways it might be better to unplug to some degree and watch the games and look around the league and monitor the standings, but not check the playoff odds as often as we do come to your own conclusions assuming that you don't have money riding on it or anything there are no stakes if you're wrong and if you enjoy things that way we've definitely talked about that in the past and i think there is something to be said for that and most baseball fans do enjoy things and experience the game that way so i think if there is even the superficial appearance of parody and of contention i think that's a good thing right even if we might look at a certain team and say no chance if their fans are looking at them and saying chance <laughs> i guess that's a good thing in a lot of ways
0: yeah now i do think that we need to to be mindful that like the the feeling of us have of your team having a chance is not necessarily something that remains static and part of why we were nervous about the expanded field is that we were concerned that it would you know reduce the incentive to try because you can get in with fewer wins now that incentive compounding over time might result in more teams kind of looking the same and all being close and it might also result in some teams that are just like really god awful and then their <laughs> fans are going to have a hard time being like well we're in it and that's going to be like no you're this year's I don't know pick a pick a team you're this year's nationals <laughs> woof
1: yeah. Who yeah.
0: can up at the Reds now, Ben? Did you know that?
1: Mm-hmm. It's no longer bad. the worst record in baseball. Yeah, yeah pretty paid bad. Paid for the Reds. Okay. All right. Question from Jacob, Patreon supporter. Last night, Mike Trout had a full count when he was hit by a pitch in the ninth inning. Yeah. My wife said he should get two bases. That pitch would have been ball four, and also it hit him. Oh. I'd never thought about that, and I think she's right. It doesn't seem fair that the batter gets nothing for being hit by the pitch that would have been ball four your thoughts.
0: Well, that's hard to argue, isn't it? I mean, we don't really have any two-base things
1: though. We've talked about whether it just should be two bases as a yeah. baseline or maybe if you get hit in a certain spot it should be two like bases. Like your glass,
0: like your glass
1: S. <laughs> maybe.
0: If you get hit in your glass S, you get three bases.
1: <laughs> But this one is just... Yeah, we're well, going to have to
0: do a glass-ass t-shirt, way.
1: Oh, yeah, probably. We, yeah. yeah, we've we've considered something that might incorporate that yeah, idea. Yeah, Stay tuned. But mm. if you get a hit on a 3-2 pitch, it sucks for you. It's yes. a bummer because you can't, as you're trotting down to first and nursing whatever bruised body part just got hit, you can't say, well, I took one for the team. At least I got a free right. base out of this because if you had gotten out of the you way, then you still anyway. would have gotten that base. Yeah. yeah. So that's not good but i don't know whether it's fair to penalize pitchers more for that just because it came on 3-2
0: it would be a pretty dramatic like increase in odds of scoring to afford someone to give mm-hmm. them to essentially award them a double for having been hit by a pitch in a in a count that would have led to a walk like that's a yeah that's a big shift mm-hmm. right Doesn't that seem like maybe as unfair as it feels that you aren't really getting exactly what you want? Like, it's a big... That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff.
1: Right, and I don't know that that's fair to the batters who get hit earlier in the count. It still hurts just as much, no matter at least physically. Maybe psychologically, it hurts you more if you were hit and you know that you could have gotten that base even if you had gotten out of the way of that ball. But I don't know that it's fair to assess a steeper penalty on the pitcher. If you hit the batter, then it should probably be the same penalty and the same disincentive regardless of what the count is. I don't know. It's tough. I would feel bad for the hitter. Maybe they should, like, get a pizza party or something. (laughs) Just, like, get a little bonus in their paycheck. I don't know. I want to do something for the batter who gets plunked on 3-2. It's uh, it's rough, but – I don't know that it actually merits an extra base.
0: I want to preface this by saying this is an incredibly rudimentary way of thinking about (laughs) this. But Ben, did you know that Fangraphs has a a win probability added inquirer tool, right? Where you can... You can set the base situation and the inning and the outs and the run differential, and you can see like what does changing stuff do to the home and away team's win expectancy, right? Mm-hmm. So what I did is I just was like, hey, let's say that we have the reality of the situation after Trout had walked in. Obviously, this isn't taking into account the particular batters or pitchers involved and blah, 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 mm-hmm. but and it assumes a particular run environment, but... We'll keep it simple. So on the one hand, we have the actual base situation following Trout getting hit by a pitch, which is you had runners on first and second, because Otani had walked earlier in this inning, and you have two outs and you have a one run run differential, which is very <laughs> hard to say. That's hard to say. But that's, you know, our our actual situation. And in that moment, in this stage of the game, the home team's win expectancy is 85.9 and the away team's is 14.1. Now, let's reimagine it. Our new rule is in place. So now you have runners on second and third because in order for Mike Trout to be on second base, Shoei Ohtani has to be on third base, right? Mm-hmm. Still two outs, still just a one run run differential. I'm going to keep <laughs> saying it until it's easy. In that situation, the home team's win expectancy drops to 79.9 and the away team's win expectancy goes up to 20.1. And I don't know what the number is I have in mind for like how much an individual mistake on the part of the pitcher should sway the win probability of a particular moment, but this feels like too dramatic of a shift to me. Mm-hmm. In my incredibly <laughs> wonky non-specific Moment of description. So I think that it's too much, but it's too bad because there's not, this is where the, like, the, you know, the sort of brutish nature of baseball gets in the way because we can't. We can't give like half a base, you know? Yeah. We can't be like, this is worth one and a half bases. You get to stand in between (laughs) first and second. (laughs) You're a moment now. Congratulations. (laughs) Like we don't have that capability. You just have to be on a base or not. Like it's, you know, it's a binary state. So that's too bad because yeah, like poor Mike Trout, he gets whacked. It looked like it hurt so bad. I Mm -hmm. was so... Angry at Clay Holmes, who I really enjoy watching. Clay Holmes is fantastic. He has been great. He was the he was the AL reliever of the month for May, right? Fantastic. Ben wrote a great piece about him for us. Clay Holmes is a joy, but he hit my Trout, and I yelled, "He should be in prison," <laughs> <laughs> because my Trout looked like it really hurt. And you know, sometimes stuff just really hurts for a second, and then sometimes my Trout is gone for like an entire yeah. season and. So I just had this moment. I was like, "No, it can't be true." (laughs) Yeah. And then I think he was fine. So I I will admit to overreacting, and I will admit that my little rudimentary "How likely is the home team to win?" inquiry is like it's an indicator. It's not a particularly precise one. It's just a way to think about it. But it seems like too much. So that's too bad.
1: I think the pitcher should just have to say sorry, just more effusively. <laughs> sorry, I hit you, and really sorry that I hit you on three two. Yeah, that, just, that stings. I know it does, but I wouldn't actually put anything in the rule book. I don't think.
0: I don't think so either. But it's useful for us to be, you know, engaged with whether we think the scales are sort of equally balanced in these moments, and hopefully we do that using more sophisticated tools than I just.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question from Ethan, Patreon supporter. I'll cut right to the question. What, if anything, comes to mind when I ask what event are you actually surprised has not yet happened in baseball? (sighs) For a little uninteresting context, several years ago, I tried to make a list of things that haven't happened yet. The universe of things that haven't happened yet is obviously infinite. So I tried to limit myself to things that could happen. But as far as I can tell, have not, at least in MLB. The list I came up with included the below combined perfect game, Mm. zero strikeout, zero walk, no hitter for a single pitcher, a five homer game for a single player, a five double game, a four triple game, eight hits in a game in a nine inning game, seven walks by a hitter, seven strikeouts by a hitter, 21 strikeouts, of course, by a pitcher, Some of these are simply records. For example, we have had a 20 strikeout game, so next on the list is 21. Others are just unique events. I'm curious if you can think of anything missing. And what if any of these you think is actually most likely to happen? Given changing pitcher usage, it sure feels like the combined perfect game is coming. That's true. It is uh, sort of surprising that we haven't had that yet.
0: Yeah. I think of that list, that might be the one that I... Would point to. I guess I find it weird that we still have teams that haven't made it to the World Series, just because we've true, had yeah. a a lot of World Series. And I know that for some, you know, for some of the teams in question, like they weren't around for most of those, so it becomes less surprising when you think about it that way. But I guess I'm kind of, I guess I'm a little surprised that we haven't had every team at least appear. You know, in the World mm-hmm. Series, even if it's not as surprising to me that like every team hasn't won one, because again, like that's hard to do. Yeah. But yeah, a combined perfect game does seem like it kind of seems like we're due for it. I wonder how we will react when it happens.
1: <laughs> well, there hasn't been a perfect game of any kind for some time now. I know. So that's why I the Mariners can't. haven't
0: been to the postseason.
1: <laughs> right. I would care more about it. Maybe because of that, I don't care at all about combined no-hitters. Combined perfect game, I would care about more, maybe, but not that much more. (laughs) It is weird that it hasn't happened. I guess you still get a lot of walks and hit-by-pitches these days and other things that could prevent that from happening. But really... If it's just, it depends if it's one of these like six reliever type deals where a bunch of guys throw a single inning and didn't even know that they were throwing a combined perfect game until after it was over, I don't think I would care all that much. I'd care marginally more than a combined no hitter.
0: Yeah, marginally more. I think you you might be surprised by how much marginally more you care. <laughs> one run, run
1: differential. <laughs> it's not exactly in the spirit of the question and it's not. Fun, exactly. But this is where my mind went in a morbid direction. This is really not what Ethan was asking, I don't think. But I have been kind of surprised that a pitcher hasn't died yet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, really taking things down in a different direction here. Yeah. But We've seen so many close calls and every time we have one and some pitcher gets hit in the head by a line drive and makes some miraculous recovery and everyone always says like, oh, it's going to take some fatal occurrence here for anything to happen for pitchers to start wearing some protective equipment or for that equipment to be perfected. So. Hate to be a wet blanket here when we're just talking about fun statistical things that could happen, but given how many games have been played and how long baseball has been played and the fact that the mound has not moved back any in... Players have gotten bigger and stronger, and they're releasing pitches closer to the plate than ever, and they're hitting balls harder than ever, and they're ending up closer to the plate when they release the pitch. All of those factors make you think that the risks are higher than ever potentially, aside from the fact that there are fewer balls in play, I suppose. But every time there's a close call, whether it's someone who gets brained and has to miss a lot of time, whether it's a Brandon McCarthy case or a Chris Bassett case – Or even if it's just someone ducks and you just barely misses them every time, I think, like, man, we bit the bullet there or bit the baseball or whatever, and that at some point someone might not be so lucky. So that was uh, the darkest possible answer to this question. Yeah, (laughs) I I don't know if we can lighten it up at all, but (laughs) that was just the first way that my mind meant I don't know what that means about me.
0: I think it's weird that we haven't seen the player visibly poop themselves. I mean, we've
1: had. <laughs> Thank you for changing the mood a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I am
0: trying to help you out. I try to pivot mm-hmm. away to something, you know. Well, I don't know that it's less dark.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Depends what you had for lunch.
0: Friday show. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, I feel like we have a lot of close calls. You know, Mm -hmm. we find out about close calls every year where guys like I, uh, you know, I couldn't couldn't be out there because I was in the bathroom. I had to do do, you know. And Mm -hmm. so I'm kind of I'm kind of amazed that we have not seen a guy just blow out.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep.
0: We've seen guys throw up on the mound, sure, or in the field. You know, mostly on the mound. So we've seen that. It's so it's not as if there's no precedent for you know um, unpredictable bodily function, but. Uh, I, I, to my knowledge, don't think we've ever seen a guy poop himself out there. And Mm -hmm. I'm surprised by that. So (laughs) yeah,
1: Yeah. I keep thinking of other directions, like, you know, the fact that we haven't had an active, openly publicly gay major leaguer in 2022 sort of surprises me. I mean, I understand it, but obviously... That barrier has been broken in a number of sports, most sports, high level leagues at this point. Baseball seems to be lagging behind. MLB does. Of course, there have been minor leaguers and indie yeah. leaguers and such. But That does sort of surprise me. I guess Ethan just he did a good job here of listing the statistical possibilities, and that's why I'm grasping for other ideas (laughs) and uh, going in other directions here. But, you know, I mean, I guess, like, given the fact that uh, there have been so many homers hit in recent years, you might have expected to see a a five-homer game, although, again, those homers have been distributed across the lineup more so than any one person or Maybe, I don't know, some other single season records that have stood. I suppose it doesn't really surprise me that no one has like challenged Bonds or anything lately, but no one has even really taken a real run at Ruth and Maris in recent years, which – Is surprising, I think, if you just knew that the home run rate was higher than ever and, of course, different patterns and distributions of of dingers. But it is weird that in the years when we had the highest home run rates ever that no one really made a run at any significant single season record, although there were some like rookie home run record and lots of, you know, team level home run records and that sort of thing.
0: I think it's surprising that we haven't had a woman umpire a, a big league game. Yeah.
1: That's a good one. That's yep.
0: weird. That, that is weird. so strange. I mean, like, strange is a perhaps generous way of describing <laughs> what state that uh, suggests about that game. But that's that's real weird that we haven't seen that. We should get on that.
1: Yep. All right. Okay. Good suggestions, Ethan. And uh, anyone who is listening right now and shouting at us their ideas that we are not thinking of, please do write in. Yeah. Give us your emails. Mm-hmm. All right, and here's a question from Dank Hank, Patreon supporter, who says, On May 31st, Twins at Tigers, Corey Provis mentioned in the bottom of the first that Devin Smeltzer's wife recommended he use his curveball more, and Smeltzer had attributed his recent success to that change. This raises the question, how valuable is it to have a baseball spouse slash partner for a player, not just a fan, someone with knowledge or experience who could coach an MLB caliber player, also, does having a baseball hater as a partner decrease player value? Who do you <laughs> think is the MVP most valuable partner in MLB? What Would is not Jessica- dare to speculate on that last one. <laughs> what is Jessica Cox's or Chelsea Freeman's war? Yeah, I guess we, we can't assign <laughs> war to partners here. That is a, a good story. Kudos to yeah. Smeltzer's partner there. But I don't know. I could see it going either way. I mean, for one thing, like that's not. The job of your romantic partner necessarily to recommend changes to your pitch usage. There are people who have that job and are employed in positions where they're supposed to deliver recommendations like that. No, no one has your own interests at heart, probably, hopefully, more so than that person. So if they've been watching you your whole career and they pick up on something that you should or could be doing something differently, that's great. But I could see why it would be helpful for a baseball player not to have a partner who cares that much about baseball because they're around baseball all day. Right. Maybe when they're home, they just want to decompress and they want to talk about something else and they don't want to be coached (laughs) by their girlfriend or their wife or whoever their partner is, right? I mean, maybe that would be annoying if you go home from the park where you have actual coaches, uniformed coaches who are telling you to do this or that and then you get home and someone says, honey, why don't you throw the change up more? (laughs) Yeah. I could see how maybe you would want a break from baseball depending on how your season is going. So. If you happen to have a very perceptive partner who has some baseball acumen and could pick up on something, that'd be nice. Like sometimes there are players who go back to their college coaches, right, or someone who tutored them as a kid or often a parent who Mm -hmm. maybe instructed them in the first place. So someone like that who's seen you your whole life and knows your psyche and your mentality, they could maybe coach you more so than a major league coach who just met you this year. But I don't know that you would always want that necessarily.
0: Yeah, I think a lot would, would really just depend on what is the best mechanism in your partnership to convey support for your partner? And mm-hmm. that might involve like, hey, I noticed that you're tipping this pitch or yeah. hey, you know, you're know, like, change is looking really good. You should throw that more often. Mm-hmm. But it it might also mean like, Let's watch Stranger Things.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) You know, and I I think that like truly one of the very best ways to build baseball expertise is just to watch a lot of baseball. And so by that rubric, the partners of players are often very well positioned to like know what works and what doesn't because they watch a lot of baseball like and the 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 Seeming cultural expectation that they be engaged with with their partners' careers and like be present when they're doing their work, not all the time, but often is like a a kind of interesting and and unique thing about being a pro baseball player. I would imagine. So by that rubric, I imagine that there are a great many partners of big leaguers who know a lot about the game and probably could offer, you know, maybe if they even if they couldn't offer specific coaching advice to their husbands or boyfriends or what have you could tell you stuff about baseball and like have an opinion on what works well and what doesn't and like would be able to watch you know their partner like throw a bullpen and be like oh that pitch isn't working today right like I'm sure that there are people who can do that but whether that is productive and and helpful might vary and it's such a funny thing because like (laughs) if we were talking about surgeons (laughs) (laughs) and their partners we'd never be like they can tell them how to do surgery no (laughs) so it is a weird you know but but also you might come home at the end of the day from your long day being a accountant and be like oh honey you'll never believe this math accounting thing and then they'll be like Mm -hmm. oh boy Mm -hmm. Uh, you should try this you know yeah so, I don't know. I think uh, it probably just really depends on the couple and like what works well for them and what their expectations are of one another and I don't know, like not every player's partner is going to be like I really don't mean this in a dismissive way. Like they're not going to be like a professional helpmate, you know. Like some mm-hmm. some of the women who are involved with big leaguers, like part of their job is organizing the logistics of their lives and that means mm-hmm. that that's what they do for work and that is work so i don't mean it in a dismissive way but they're gonna there are players for whom that isn't true so i think it really just depends on the person
1: yeah well done brianne smeltzer who yeah. uh, Says apparently, Smeltzer said she even recommended that he throw the change up down and away more ah, often. So, cool. not only pitch type, but location. Cool. She was specifying. And he said she doesn't give me advice often, so I listen when she does. Cool. So that's good. At least she's not like bombarding him with advice after <laughs> every like, game. Yeah. That would not be helpful. So. Sounds
0: like they got it dialed in. Really nice. Yeah.
1: She's picking her spots. Yeah. Okay. Last question. This comes from Monty who says, I'm high and watching my Padres. Yeah. <laughs> I assume you have mailbags. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> Being a catcher looks like it isn't much fun. You have to squat a lot and dive a lot. You have to put on and take off a lot of crap. You get hit yeah. with baseballs. You know it wrecks your body and will shorten your career. This is totally open-ended. What if dressing up like RoboCop or Iron Man wasn't worth it and no one on the planet wanted to play the position of catcher? Oh. Baseball is the same in every other way. The importance of the catcher position is understood. The world needs baseball and every player understands someone has to play catcher. Every young kid and professional would still love everything about baseball except for the idea of playing catcher. It sucks. It is a road trip where you have the middle seat in the back and there is no air conditioning. No destination could be worth it. Unless the compensation or motivation were sufficient, they might be willing to give the game up entirely rather than play catcher. What are we going to do here? (laughs) Great question, Monty. If you had not said you were high, I would have wondered, is Monty high when he was writing this email? But (laughs) um, so no one wants to play catcher. So I don't know if the the premise of the question is that like literally no one is playing catcher or someone has to play catcher, I would think. How could you get by without a catcher?
0: Yeah. Kind
1: of an essential service.
0: I wonder if this would be a problem that would take care of itself in short order. Because, like, if there's literally no one who will do it, then I guess you have a problem. But I think that what would happen is you would just have a much smaller pool of people who were willing to do it and could also do it at like a professional level. Because that's the other issue. Like, I'm sure there are plenty of people who are like, I'd be a big league catcher. And then they get in there and they'd be like, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. This is, in fact, terrible. These pitches are terrifying. But I think that what it would mean is that you would just end up being like one of the best paid players in the league.
1: Exactly. Right. right. Scarcity. Yeah. Supply like, and demand. I think, <laughs> I
0: think that the market would probably start to provide a powerful enough incentive for more people to be like, I, you know, there are plenty of people who really hate their jobs and they don't get paid like big leaguers. So imagine if the market forces of the big leagues came to bear on there mm-hmm. being a legitimate catcher shortage. People would be like, I guess for forty million dollars a year, I'll do it. Yeah, fine. And mm-hmm. then, and then, the rates would come down because more people would be like, "Oh, I'm going to be a catcher." And then he'd be like, "Ha ha, gotcha." Economics. <laughs> right. Friday show.
1: Yeah, you got to have a catcher. It's it's pretty non negotiable. You got to have a catcher. The ball just. Uh...
0: Yeah, even when we have robo ump's, we're going to need catchers because the ball mm-hmm. just rolls to the backstop forever and ever, never yeah. stop rolling.
1: That would be a big problem. Okay. I will leave you with today's history minutes or whatever we're calling it. Today's episode number in baseball history. We have not received any great suggestions yet, as you can tell, for how to name this little segment here. But this, as always, comes from Richard Hershberger, historian, saber researcher, author of Strike Four, about the evolution of baseball in the 19th century. So Richard says, I have a humdinger here for 1858. And this was something that he transcribed into his notes years ago. I do not have an image of this to share, but he knows where it's from. So this is from the Happy Home and Parlor magazine, December 1st, 1858. So it says, ball playing has become an institution. It is no longer a healthful recreation. In which persons of sedentary habits engage for needful relaxation and exercise, but it is now an actual institution. Yes, this is, as Richard says, the earliest known complaint that ballplayers are not playing the game the right way anymore. This is 1858. To continue, Young men associate for this object, organize themselves into an association with constitution and laws to control them, and then plunge into the amusement with a sort of young America fanaticism— In almost every town throughout all this region, there is one of these regularly formed and inaugurated ball clubs, the members of which meet frequently to practice the art for the sake of being able to worst some neighboring club (laughs) whom they challenge, not best some neighboring club, but worst, that makes some sense too, or by whom they are challenged to a hot contest. Hot contest.
0: Hot contest.
1: The matter has become a sort of mania, and on this account we speak of it. In itself, a game at ball is an innocent and excellent recreation, but when the sport is carried so far as it is at the present time, it becomes a public nuisance. For these reasons, we class ball clubs as now existing with circus exhibitions, (gasps) military musters, pugilistic feats, cockfighting, etc., all of which are nuisances in no small degree. Again, that's from the Happy Home and Parlor magazine, December 1st, 1858. And Richard says, The Happy Home and Parlor magazine was published in Boston from 1855 to 1859. (laughs) Did not have a really long run, I guess. Containing articles on various pious topics. This excerpt is from an editorial bemoaning kids nowadays. Just a time-honored go-to column topic for someone who's out of material. The objection is not to baseball, but to organized baseball. Baseball was a traditional boys' game since colonial times. Men might indulge on occasions, such as holidays, briefly throwing off their adult cares. But organized baseball, adults forming clubs with constitutions and officers, sending scores to be published in newspapers, that was another thing entirely. So, playing baseball, just getting together with some friends, just uh, tossing the old horsehide around or whatever it was made of at the time, fine. No problem with that, according to the Happy Home and Parlor magazine. But when you start getting teams together and trying to beat other people at baseball, that's you've taken it too far. That's a mania. And we've only continued to take it further still in that direction since 1858. So sorry to inform the author of that editorial, but their words did not have the intended effect.
0: Now I'm envisioning like a version of Footloose, but about baseball.
1: Ooh. Right.
0: Right? Because it's like, oh, we can't have these kids dancing. It'll lead to (laughs) sex and independent thinking.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, why I wanted to do this history segment for many reasons. We get some insight into the development of certain rules and how we got this crazy game that we have today. But also just because history repeats itself endlessly – And this sort of complaint, I guess we don't hear this exact complaint these days, (laughs) like people are playing games. Have you seen this? People are trying to beat other people at baseball instead of just having a good time. Jeez, relax. Take it easy, people. But we do certainly see complaints about people not playing the game the right way anymore in yeah, every successive generation of players. You have some crusty, ornery veterans who say that today's players don't play the game the right way. And you just go back to the beginning of baseball history and it was like, ah, oh, baseball used to be better. Like this is, this is not quite – Baseball is dying, this argument, although I'm sure we'll get plenty of that in this segment. This is like baseball should die. (laughs) Like baseball is a public nuisance the way that they're playing it these days, keeping score and everything. Come on. Yeah. But you have heard that basically since the beginning, because as soon as baseball became professionalized, everyone was just, you know, waxing rhapsodic about how they used to just play for the love of the game, not for the paycheck. And these days it's just a business and it's not the same anymore. So that hearkening back to some earlier era, that was a constant, even if the earlier era was the eighteen forties instead of the eighteen fifties.
0: Cats and dogs living together in this mm-hmm. economy.
1: That will do it for today and for this week. All right, we got a few responses to our discussion on our most recent episode about home run robberies and whether it actually constitutes a robbery if a tall player just sticks his hand up and manages to intercept the ball before it goes over the fence. David wrote in to say, I think Aaron Judge does rob the batter of a home run insofar as he takes the home run from the batter without his permission but he basically pickpockets the batter. It's a single, deft, effortless swipe that nabs him the goods, although it's not like he ends up with the home run himself afterward. But the outfielder who makes a fantastic leaping catch, that player pulls off a daring heist. Timing the jump, risking the slam against the wall, coming down with the big smile, showing off the ball, that's a daring heist, right? So David wants us to dub that the home run heist. Christian, Patreon supporter, wrote in to say, using aggressive effort to pull down a home run is a home run robbery. Being able to easily do the same is a home run burglary. All right, home run burglary it is. And Patreon supporter Kellen writes in with a late-breaking suggestion for a name for the history segment. An idea for the history minute. Time to play it by year. Not year, but year. All right, Kellen, thank you. That is the leader in the clubhouse. Best suggestion we've gotten so far. Also, the only suggestion we've gotten so far. But not bad. That's the name to beat. And Patreon supporter Aaron wrote in to say, I might have missed you discussing the Justin Turner deke pulled on JT Real Muto at third base. Turner pretended the ball sailed over his head, got Real Muto to scamper off a few steps, then hurriedly tagged him for the out.
0: Muscled up the middle. Turner ranges a long way to get it and throws late. Throw goes to third. Riamuto's in safely. Oh, move! Comes off the bag, and he's out! Great move! Riamuto thought that the ball was down the line, and he's tagged out by Turner. Wow! JT not only deep, Riamuto, but the third base coach as well. Great play, great awareness.
1: Wow! And that's right, we've been talking about hidden ball tricks and defensive deeks, and this was a good example of the latter. Dave Roberts said, just a heady play. Turner sold the wide throw really well, a good player in Real Muno, but we got him. That was a big out. I thought that was going to be the difference in the game. It was not. This came at the expense of the Phillies, but this was a game that the Phillies won. This was back on May 22nd. That was the one where Max Muncy made the game-ending error, got sucked into the Phillies' nexus of subpar defense. But that was a good defensive play. Nice deek. Well executed, Mr. Turner. And you may have seen some stories circulating about a fancy new pitching machine that the Mets are acquiring and that some other teams have already been using. I wrote about this topic last year for The Ringer, about the new science of pitching machines and the quest for the perfect pitching machine. This advanced one sounds like it's the Traject Sports model, which I wrote about in that piece. But the idea is that the only way for hitters to keep up with pitchers and the science of pitch design is to replicate those pitches more accurately via machines that hitters can use to practice against before the game begins, So these machines more accurately replicate the movement of pitches, and also the release point, and they simulate the pitcher's delivery, etc. The idea is that, well, if you can replicate those in-game plate appearances more closely by training against this machine and having a more accurate facsimile of that pitcher in your practice, then that should be better than just having someone throw slow batting practice, or someone even throwing fast batting practice, but from a different release point, and with different movement profiles, etc. So... Some teams are using VR to improve their batting practice and train against the pitchers they're about to face in-game. And this is another way to do it with more and more advanced pitching machines. So hitters are trying to keep pace however they can. I'll link to the article in case you're interested about the ins and outs and the challenges of actually making a machine throw like a particular pitcher. Not that the Mets need a ton of help on offense these days. They have been out hit by only the Dodgers so far this season. But rather than, say, not mess with success, they are trying to arm themselves with whatever implements they can use to practice, and they are not the only team going down this road. So I will link to that article on their show page, I will link to that Justin Turner play, a video of that, and everything else that we discussed today as usual. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount. To help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Jacob Longo, Dory Mintz, Joseph Payne, Eric Wright, and Lauren Odessa. Thanks to all of you. As a reminder, extras for Patreon supporters include access to the Patreon Discord group. About 650 members in there now talking about baseball and life at all hours of the day and night. You also get access to bonus episodes that Meg and I record, one a month. We now have a backlog of seven of them that you can listen to all at once if you want if you're just signing up now. We also do playoff live streams later in the season. And as mentioned last time, we now have new t-shirts. They've been flying off the virtual racks, I assume. And you can get yourself a 10% discount by signing up for any Patreon tier. Also, you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectivelywild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you first thing next week.